So Genesis 38, we'll turn there and let's read verse 1 through 8. It tells us, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. So we see a couple of things happening here. The first thing with Judah is that he departs from his brothers. Again, family, the enemy loves to get us alone. The enemy loves for us to say, hey, I don't want to be in fellowship. I don't want to be with my brothers and sisters. I can do this on my own. I can do this in my own strength. And that's when the enemy, like any decent predator, will seek out to steal, kill, and destroy so Judah, he goes on his own, he goes, he's following his brothers, and now he sees a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. If you're reminded of Judah's father, Jacob, right, he left his family, he left his parents to go find a wife from his own people. He didn't want to marry a wife that would not have the same perspective, the same worldview, the same biblical view of life as himself. If you're reminded, Abraham, for his own son, he sent his best servant, his top servant, to go find a wife for his son Isaac. But here, we see Judah being content and fine to marrying a pagan woman. And as he marries this pagan woman, there's no doubt that there's a great effect on his family and on his own sons. On his three sons, the first one, he was evil and wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strikes him down and kills him. We don't know what he did. We don't know why he did it or how he did it. All it tells us is that he was wicked and the Lord killed him. So now Judah, he gives Tamar to his next son. And what we can look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is of the law that was given. Again, it may be foreign to us. And many of the laws in the Old Testament, we see them happening within the book of Genesis, and then later on the Lord gives it as thus saith the Lord. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Lord provided a covering and protection for women in a culture when women were looked at as property, when women were really looked at as a token or as a piece of property, a piece of meat. Because a woman in this culture that was not married, or did not have sons, did not have kids, she really had no life. She had no way to prepare for herself. She had no way to cover herself. She had no way to protect herself or provide for herself. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, it tells us, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, Take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be 
that the firstborn son which he bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Again, the Lord carries this out to A, protect these ladies and these women in a really difficult culture, and B, to make sure that the genealogies continue until even today, but especially until the time of Jesus Christ. We see Judah, he's doing a lot of dumb and bad things, and it's affecting his own sons. If you're reminded in Genesis 37, it was Judah's idea in verse 26 and 27. He tells his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened. Again, it was Judah's idea to say, hey, why go through the trouble of killing him and making no money and making no profit? We don't have to get our hands as dirty, and we can make a little money off of our little brother. So let's sell him into slavery. So again, this is the man that gives us the name of the tribe where Jesus would come from. So the first son dies and passes away. Now Judah gives Tamar to his next son. And this man would not have an heir to himself, but the baby, the baby boy that would be born, would take the place of the first son heir. So again, the first kid, he's the firstborn. He's the one that gets the lineage. He's the one that gets the heritage. He's the one that gets the blessing, the double portion, all those things. So now he sees Onan. Onan sees that the heir would not be his, verse 9. And it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. So there's two things for us to see from the text. First and foremost is Onan and Judah and their family. They could care less about being in the family and heritage of the Messiah. He had no concern with trying to protect the lineage, trying to protect the genealogy that one day the Messiah would come. It's as if he cares less about being a part of the family of God. And now it's punishable to him. He loses it. These people aren't saying, Lord, will we be a part of Eve's seed that the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world would come to us? It's as if Judah and his sons have forgotten about that promise and they can care less about it. That's the first thing. The second thing we see here is that Onan used Tamar as only an object of his own pleasure. He did not use it as an object to care for his wife or care for his brother or care for his family. And family, we can fall prey to these same sins even today, where we use sex out of selfishness. We use other people as tools for our own pleasure. And it's a path that leads to great sin and great disgust. Life is always better when we do it God's way. Someone asked, hey, what does God think about homosexuality? What does the Bible have to say with homosexuality? That's one of the hot topics we have today. But family, don't get it twisted. Any type of sexual intimacy that's outside of one man and one woman who are married is sinful and wrong in the eyes of God. Any type of sex outside of one married man and one married woman who are married to the Lord and to the law of the land, any sex outside of that is wrong in the sight of the Lord. 
whether it be masturbation, whether it be pornography, whether it be swinging, whether it be adultery, any type of sexual intimacy outside of one man and one woman who are married, it's wrong and sinful against the Lord. And even today within marriages, husbands and wives look at one another as objects for their own pleasure instead of saying, Lord, how can I bless my spouse? Again, that's what the marriage bed is for, is to say, Lord, how can I please my spouse as much as possible? Not saying, Lord, how can she please me as much as possible? How can he please me as much as possible? We need to make this decision within our mind if we're going to do life and family according to what the Bible says or according to what our emotions say, our feelings say, or this world has to say. And again, he lost it. He lost it. The Lord takes him and the Lord kills him right then and there. Verse 11 through 14, it tells us, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. A couple things for us to see here. First and foremost, Shelah is a strange name for a boy. That's first and foremost. That's the strange thing, right? Secondly, Judah was concerned. Judah says, hey, I have three sons and Tamar. Two of them have died with you. So I'm a little worried. I'm a little concerned about giving you my last son to you. But let's wait. Let's wait till he grows up and he'll be given to you in marriage following Deuteronomy chapter 25, which will come later on. Finally, he tells her, go and wait in your father's house. And when my son is grown up, then you can marry him. You can continue the family lineage. And he will be able to protect you or provide a child for you so that that son can care for you and protect you. So this is what Judah tells Tamar. But now verse 12 through 14, it tells us in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died And Judah was comforted, and he went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown And she was not given to him as a wife. Again, family, Tamar was stuck in a culture where she could do nothing. She was dependent on Judah doing what he said that he would do to provide for her and care for her. But now Judah loses his wife. And instead of turning to the Lord, what does he turn to? More sin and more parting. I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe I'm the only one. That I'm hitting my head against the wall. I've lost things. I've been hurt. I'm tasting of the wages of sin, how it's death. And then I say, okay, Lord, I know I've been humbled like crazy, but I got a little pride left, right? I got a little pride left, so I'm going to try to solve this problem with more sin and more of the flesh and more problems. I know none of you guys do that here. Just me. Just me sometimes. But here we see Judah. He's been hurt. He's left his brothers. It's costed his family. He's lost two sons. Now he loses his wife. And he doesn't turn back to the Lord. He's not saying, Lord, let me build an altar to you. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Lord, I've been wrong. How could I have done all these disgusting and terrible things? But instead, verse 15, it tells us when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. Because she had covered her face. 
Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? And then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. So again, Judah loses his wife. When it talks about that they went up to do the, the sheep shearing, this would be a time of partying and festivities and festivals. So he says, hey, I've lost my wife. Let me go party. Let me go forget about her. Let me go party. He finds this woman that he thinks is a prostitute. So he says, hey, let me wash away my sorrow in this. But little does he know that it's his own daughter-in-law that he has forsaken, that he has given up on, that he has lied to, and that he does not care about. Now, we could read this, and hopefully we're all a bit disgusted, right? This is weird. This is disgusting. This is terrible. But for us, what we should see is within Tamar, even though Judah and his sons could care less about being in the family and heritage of God, in Tamar, there's something within her that she has a hunger to be a part of the family of God. There is a hunger in Tamar, even though she's a pagan woman, and no, she's done nothing wrong at this time. She's a pagan woman that has married into God's family, into God's chosen people. And yet she has a hunger and thirst that, Lord, would I be able to be a part of your family? Would I be able to be a part of the lineage of the Messiah? I'm reminded of the woman that came to Jesus and Jesus said, hey, I, we don't give the food for the children to the dogs, right? And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And she had a hunger, she had a thirst to be a part of the people of God. But Judah, he had no care about that. All he was caring about was fulfilling his own lusts, his desires. He sinks to an all-new low. He completely abandons the Lord. He completely abandons her and lies to her. But she's thinking, she's planning. She has his signet ring. He has the cord that probably held his robe together, tied his robe together, and she has his staff. Verse 19 through 23. So she arose, she went away, and she laid aside her veil upon the garment of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Again, Judah, he has some shame to what he has done. He doesn't want to show his face around there anymore. He doesn't want to go back there, so he sends his friend to pay for the deeds of his sins. Verse 21, then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So Judah here, he gives up on the pledge. He says, hey, forget about the deal. Forget about the payment I made with her. We don't want to cause any more shame, any more embarrassment to us. Let's just leave it alone. Verse 24 through 26, it tells us, It came to pass about three months afterwards that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. So again, family, the rumor mill, right, gets around. And someone tells Judah, hey, your daughter-in-law that's supposed to be waiting for you and your sons, she's pregnant. She's showing. Tamar, in this language of tongue, I don't remember, again, if it's Hebrew or something else, but her name means palm tree. So you got to think, right? Cuban culture is flaquita, right? She's a little skinny girl, tall and skinny. Three months in, she's showing, her belly showing. The guys come to Judah. Man, your daughter-in-law has been the harlot. She's pregnant with a child, and Judah raises up in his indignation, in his anger, and he says, let's burn her at the stake. Three-month pregnant woman, and let's burn her at the stake. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this reminds me of David, a man after God's own heart. And family, we have to be honest with ourselves. We are much more prone to see sin on other people. And we are much more prone to want to deal with pure justice when we see the sins on other people. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David is here. He has taken Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. In order to cover it up, he has Uriah killed. He has Uriah murdered. Before that, he tried to get Uriah drunk so that he would sleep with his wife, so that he'd be able to lie about whose baby uh, the father was. And then he kills Uriah, he murders him, his own man, one of his own soldiers, one of the mighty men of valor, one of the men that would have fought with David, would have protected David, would have been at his side, and he's totally forgotten about his sin and disgust. So Nathan comes to him, and he tells him in verse 1, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to a rich man and refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man Who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Again, family, we have to be careful. We have to continue to ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. Reveal to me my sins and my wickedness. Lord, reveal to me where I need to get right with you. We are very quick to pin our sins, pin our blame on everyone except ourselves, right? We go full-on self-preservation. We're fighting, we're swinging at everyone and anyone, even the people who are trying to save us. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but they tell you to be very careful when someone's drowning and you try to save them. Why? Because they lose it. They lose it and they're just trying to survive. So they'll start pushing you down so they can breathe. And you'll kill the person that's trying to help you and then you'll drown right afterwards. 
And often when sin is evident in our lives, that's exactly what we do. We will kill and cut down the very people who are trying to help us, who are trying to heal us, who are trying to reveal to us, hey, you have been in sin and you have been wrong. What we must do, family, is as Christ tells us, look at the plank in your own eye. Pull that two by four out, right? Get that plywood out, and then you can help other people and draw out the sawdust in their eyes. So again, that's what we must do, family. It's not, hey, okay, I'm not going to acknowledge any sin because I have sin. I don't want my sin acknowledged, so I'm not going to deal with anyone's sin. That's not what we're called to do as disciples and followers of Jesus. We're called to address the sin in our own life. Actually address it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't make reasons for it. We'll look at that in chapter 39. Address our own sin. Seek forgiveness. Seek restoration with the Lord. And then you can speak to your brothers and sisters and reason with them. We go back to Genesis chapter 38, verse 27 through 30. It tells us, Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So again, Judah, he sins. He doesn't think of the full consequences of his sin. He thinks it's going to just be pleasure. It's going to help him get over some pain, some raw emotion. But now the woman's pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. She's giving birth. The first baby sticks his hand out. They think, oh, he's coming. He goes, psych, right? He sticks his hand back in. The next baby, the next brother goes on now. Why in the world is the Bible telling this, right? Lord, how is this meant for godliness or edification? Why is this here? Perez means breach. If you're Hispanic, I bet you didn't know that you have some Hebrew in you, right? Some Israelite within you. The name Zerah means sunrise. Family, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. And this chapter is here to show us the amount of grace, love, and mercy that God has for his people. You see, Jesus was not ashamed to be around the tax collectors, the harlots, the drunkards, the gluttons. He would be around them, but he would call them to change. He would call them to action. He wouldn't be around them to be just like them or partake in their own sins. He would be around them. Hang out with them so that he can share the gospel of his love and purification and change of life that the gospel is able to do. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it tells us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. You jump down to verse 16, and it tells us, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see, family, what this is showing us is how it says in Philippians chapter 1, that Jesus made of himself of no reputation. Jesus was willing to hang out with a bunch of nobodies, right? We may read this and say, Jesus, why in the world are you hanging out with a bunch of nobodies? Because he's still willing to hang out with a bunch of nobodies. He's still willing to hang out with me. 
Maybe your pride's not there yet. Maybe your humility's not there yet. He's willing to hang out with you in our sin, in our shame, in our disgust, in spite of all that we know, running towards sin, locking in in our pride. And he's still saying, hey, I'm willing to be associated with you. I'm still willing to be your family member. I'm still willing to be your friend. This is why this chapter is here, family, to show that the Lord still loves you. He's still willing to pour out his grace and mercy upon you. But you have to repent. You have to repent for your sins. We have to repent for our sins and say, Lord, I'm sorry. This is wickedness. This is sin. And I don't want to hurt you or anyone else ever again. We have to turn, family. So now we go to Genesis 39. Now you have a great chapter that you can read with your kids before bedtime, right? I'm sure it will lead to lots of great dreams and madness. Uh, but Genesis chapter 39, we get one of those. Meanwhile, back at the ranch... Back to Joseph, right? Verse 1, Joseph, he'd been taken to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, he bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Again, maybe we forgot, and Joseph, the last time we were with him, his ten older brothers, they gang up on him. They beat him up. They pick him up. They throw him down a well, an empty well. No splash, no safety, no soft landing. His brothers, they want to kill him. They have premeditated murder. They've come up with their alibi, how they're going to lie. They're going to kill an animal, put blood on it. Judah's great idea is to sell him into slavery to at least make some money off their little brother. And again, put yourself in Joseph's sandals if you would. How would you deal with this? You're all your brothers, all your family, they've disowned you. They've hated you. They've sold you off into slavery. Joseph, yes, the cross the wilderness from being outside of Shechem all the way into Egypt. And imagine the days, the wilderness of the journey. Being alone with only your thoughts and the shackles or the cart or whatever he's in. How would you deal? Maybe, I know you guys, you'd be praying for the brothers, asking for forgiveness of sins, asking that they would be blessed. Me, I'd be planning revenge, right? Lord, help me from the ashes to rise like the phoenix, right? And I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to come out here. I'm going to get those ten idiots for what they've done for me, right? Days and days of traveling through the wilderness. What in the world must have been going on in Joseph's head? He finally arrives to Egypt, a culture of people he's never met before, a language he can't understand. Now they've taken him to the slave block, right? They've sold him off as a piece of property. He's bought. He's been purchased. He's been taken into Potiphar's household. And how would you act? How would I act? Would I be submissive or would I be like a dog pushed into a corner, right? How would I be reacting when now I'm somebody's slave and they're telling me what to do? It tells us that Potiphar, this man who has bought him, he was one of Pharaoh's officers, he was the captain of the guard. So he had some type of military or law enforcement job. Many Bible scholars believe that he was the chief executioner in all of Egypt. Hey, what do you do for a living? I take off heads, right? That's what I do for a living. How about you, right? Talk about small talk. But that's what Potiphar was. This is what he would do. But now verse 2, we'll read verse 2 through 6. It tells us, the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. 
Then he made him an overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him an overseer of his house, and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. And now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Verse 2 tells us the Lord was with Joseph. And family, we need to remember that when the world does us dirty, when people lie to us, when people cheat from us, when people steal from us, you need to remember, hey, the Lord is still with you. He's still with you. As we watch the news, as we watch the TV, as we look at social media and we can get angry, we can become apathetic, we can get bitter, we can get sad, we need to remember, hey, the Lord, he's still with you, right? We can cry, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten about planet Earth? Have you forgotten about the United States of America? Are you seeing what's going on? Right, come in Houston, we got a problem. Lord, what is going on here? Not only is he on the throne Knowing all that's going on, he's going to work it all to his perfect plan. And he's looking at us. He's watching us. And this same, the Lord was with Joseph. It's told to us of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You could write these down. Genesis 21, verse 22. This is told to Abraham. And it says, God is with you in all that you do. Genesis 21, verse 22. Hey, Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Genesis 26, verse 28, this is for Isaac. And other men told him, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. This is Isaac. Genesis 26, verse 28. Finally, Genesis 28, verse 15, this is God himself speaking to Jacob. And he tells him, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Genesis 28 verse 15. And this should give us great comfort. Why? Because the Lord's still with us. The Lord is still with us just like he was with Joseph. Even when things were the worst that they could ever be. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. This is the one for us family. Matthew 28, this is Jesus. He's about to get beamed up. He's about to go back to heaven. And he tells them in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Again, family, this is for us. Wherever we're at, I don't know, again, if you're tired, if you're apathetic, if you're bitter, if you're angry, if you're scared, the Lord, he's with you. He promises to be with you. He promises to be with me. And for us to be on task, what's our task? Is to go and disciple all the nations. Make disciples. Are you out talking to people of the glory of Jesus, of the hope of Jesus? This is what we are required to do as disciples, as followers of Jesus, as people who say, hey, I'm going to heaven when I die. This is what we should be doing, going out, 
making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, speaking with them. This is what we are to do. And where are we at? Have we been sharing the gospel? Have we been preaching the gospel? Or have we gotten caught up in the things of this world? And some things in this world, they're good. They're fun. They're exciting. But we are pilgrims. We're just passing through. This isn't our home. America, I'm proud to be an American, but this is not our home. We should be like the men and women in Hebrews that were looking for the city that's built with God's hands. So in this world, may we be looking to bring other people into the kingdom of God with us. And remember, family, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And remember, God was with these people, but now God promised us that he will be within us and he will dwell upon us. Not only is God with us, but he promises us the gift of his Holy Spirit. That he gives us a tank when we first get the new car. When we get the first Christian car, we got a tank of gas of the Holy Spirit. But then we can ask, Lord, fill me. Lord, refresh me. And now he comes inside of us. Not only is he with us, but now he's inside us. And then we can pray, Lord, come upon me. Fill me. Help me make my decisions. Lord, help me fight the temptations of sin. Lord, help me fight the temptation to just go off on this person on social media and fill me with your Holy Spirit. We can pray all these prayers. We go back to Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, he's been thrown into a pit. He's been thrown into slavery. And yet we don't see any bitterness in him. We don't see anger. We don't resentment. We don't see why God, why me, shaking his fist at the Lord. But instead, what is he doing? He's being a hard worker to the point that his master is able to see, hey, God is with this man. Right? Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Family, when people look at you and your work ethic, who do they see? Who do they see? Ephesians chapter 6, we'll turn there. I'll turn there quickly. If you're quick, you can get there. Ephesians chapter 6, the word of God tells us how our worth ethic should be as believers. Again, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, it tells us bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Whether he is slave or free. Again family, we are required that in any area we work in, we're not working for our boss. We're working for the Lord, right? Sometimes we can get frustrated with our bosses, right? They're so hypocritical. When anything goes bad, they blame me. When anything goes well, they blame themselves, right? They get all the glory. I get all the burden. They come in whenever they want. They take a vacation after they just took a vacation. We can get bitter and angry and resentful. But the Lord says, hey, you're not working for them. You're working for me. And whatever good you do, hey, I'm going to repay you. And whatever little you do, I'm going to repay you. That's what God's word tells us. We go to Colossians chapter 3, a couple pages to the right. Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 22 through 25, it tells us, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartedly. Do it with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. God is saying, I am a just God. I'm not going to judge one person like this and one person like that. Family, we're to work hard. We're to work with all that we have. Do you know that Christians... They have a bad rep when it comes to work ethic. You guys know that? Some Christians, they have a really bad reputation when it comes to work ethic, right? You're working on something. You're being lazy. And, oh, I just need some grace, man. I just need some mercy right now. I just need your agape love, right? Relax. No, we need to work hard. When people look at us, they should say, man, God is on this person. Only God can help someone work this hard, right? This guy, they're never on their phone. They're not working on their phone the whole time. I'm not constantly having to tell them to get off their phone. They're not constantly sharing the gospel the whole day at work and doing no work, right? They share the gospel on their lunch break, on their 15s. Maybe they're able to work and talk at the same time. Family, we should work hard. We should work hard because all that we do, God says he himself will give it back to us. So may we be hard workers. And if you do business with other people in the church, A, you should really pray about it. Make sure that it's worth the friendship. And secondly, may you work as hard as you can for the Lord. Some people, they like to do business with believers because then they can say, hey, I just need grace, right? I know I owe you like $1,000, but I just need grace. I just need mercy. No. What happened to the Bible that also says that your yes be yes and your no be no, right? What about those verses? May we be hard workers. May we have a work ethic. May people be able to look at us like men and women looked at David and Daniel and Joseph. And they said, wow, the Lord is with this man to the point that I'm willing to give them everything I have. We go back to Genesis 39 and that's what it tells us of Potiphar. Again, imagine you have a foreigner come into your house. He starts off at the bottom, whatever the bottom of slavery was at that point. Maybe he's cleaning the toilets, he's clearing out the outhouses, he's caring for the outside, and he continues to grow and show, hey, this guy, he was in charge of his 10 older brothers, right? If you remember, Israel would say, hey, Joseph, tell me what your brothers are doing. Tell me how the flocks are doing. So at 17 years old, this kid shows that he has work ethic, that he's able to care for people and care for land, and he's able to be a manager to other people. Now he does this in Potiphar's house to the point where he says, hey, Joseph, Here's my social, here's my bank accounts, here's the routing numbers, here's my 401k, here's all the accounts. You could do whatever you want because I know if you're touching it, you're going to bless it because I know your work, your work ethic. It tells us the only thing that Potiphar knew what was in the fridge, right? That's the only thing he knew about his house. Hey, today I'm eating a pan con bite. That's all Potiphar knew. Only thing I know in my house is today we're having paninis. That's the only thing that Potiphar knew was the bread that was in his house. Everything else he was able to trust it into Joseph's hands. Again, family, that should be us. That should be us. Verse 6, it tells us he left everything in Joseph's hand. He didn't know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form 
and in appearance. Again, Joseph, he's anywhere between 18 to his young 20s here. And is telling us that he was trustworthy, he had a great work ethic, he was smart, he was wise, he was handsome, and he was jacked. That's what this is telling us. When it tells us that he was beautiful in form and appearance, there's only three men in God's word that it tells us. It tells us this of Joseph, of David, and of Absalom. So again, you have this young guy who's wise, he's smart, he has a good work ethic, he loves the Lord, he's handsome, he's physically fit, he has everything going on for him. And yet he's about to be faced with trials and temptations. Whereas you have Judah, his oldest brother, who literally sold his youngest brother into slavery. He has Benjamin, he has Joseph, he sells him into slavery, and he's running after sin. You have Joseph is doing the best that he can with the terrible deck that he's been given. And yet he's trying to honor the Lord. But verse 7, it tells us, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. She started giving googly eyes, right? And she said to him, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Listening to Joe Foles, again, it's funny. He says, it must have been a temptation that he had to refuse, which means he had to be beautiful. Because if he was super ugly, there'd be no temptation here, right? There'd be no warning. There'd be nothing here. It'd be disgust, not refused. But with Joseph, right away, he refused. Right away. Right away, look what he points to. He points to the trust that he has gained with himself and Potiphar. And then he points to that this is a great wickedness and a great sin against the Lord. Family, how do you deal with temptation? How do you view sin? How do you deal with stealing from people who trust you? From breaking someone's trust? How do you view that? Do you realize how hard it is to trust someone after they've broken trust with you? We realize it when someone breaks our trust. But now when our trust between us and someone else, when our job is on the line, when our trustworthiness is on the line, some people, they can care less. They're trying to just get theirs. They're trying to take advantage of a moment and say, hey, I got to do me. I got to take care of my back. Whereas Joseph, right away, he refuses. And again, imagine Joseph's psychiatrist, right? Joseph, tell me how you're feeling today. And tell me, how was your home? How was your family? Oh, not a big deal. My dad, he was married to four different women. He had sons from these four women. I was his favorite. So now my ten older brothers hated me. They threw me down a well. My two older brothers, they killed and slaughtered an entire city. My oldest sister, she was raped. I'm doing pretty okay, right? No, man, I'm totally jacked up. My mind is messed up. My world has been terrible since the day that I was born. How's your relationship with your mom? Oh, my mom passed away when she was giving birth to my youngest brother. Joseph had every reason to say, hey, this is for me. It's time for me to get one. This is going to help me heal. This is going to help me get past this. Don't I deserve something after all that I've done? And yet Joseph refused. Joseph refused, and he called it for what it was. He says that this is sin, and this is wickedness. And family, we have been dumbed down to what sin really is, right? 
I don't know what's on TV that much anymore, but back in the day, it was desperate housewives, right? It was sex in the city. And there were believers who would watch these things and be okay with it and be fine with it. How do we view adultery? We may view it as cute and funny outside our own homes, but how do you view adultery if it's you and your spouse? If it's you and the person that you hope to marry, how do you view it? Do you view it as disgusting and terrible? Or do you view it that it's just okay and we're just going to mess around with it and play with it? Or it's just an affair? No, this isn't a fair. The fair is elephant ears and dipping dots and roller coasters. This is not a fair. This is wickedness and this is sinful. And family, this is how the body of Christ needs to look at sin. We need to call it for what it is. Hey, no, that's sinful. That's wickedness. Not <laughs> that innuendo was funny. Not that dirty joke was okay. Not this movie that we're watching. It's okay. Just cover your eyes for the scene. You say, no, this is wickedness. This is sin. There's people who trust me. I don't want to break their trust. The Lord, he loves me. He cares for me. He sent his only son to die for me. I don't want to break his trust. This is how the people of God should be living and reacting. And I've been there. I've been in both camps. I've been in both camps when we've been in sin and we make excuses for it. We say it's because of the way I've been raised or, man, I messed up. But we try to justify it. We try to make reasons and excuses for it. The temptation was too hard. I was in a bad spot. I was tired. I was exhausted. No. I was wrong. I messed up. It was my fault. This is how believers need to act and react. And family, this is the only way you can move past sin. Is when you call it for what it is and you say, Lord, would you forgive me? I've done this sin. I've done this wickedness against you. Lord, I've broken someone's trust. Lord, would you forgive me? Now we go to verse 10, right? Sometimes we think, hooray, I defeated temptation one time. It's never going to come knocking on my door ever again, right? But verse 10, Genesis 39, it tells us, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day, every single day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called the men of her house and spoke to them saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice, he cried out and he left his garment here with me and I fled and I went outside. Again, family, this young man, Joseph, he's in a pagan land all by himself. There's no accountability partners. There's no church on Wednesday. There's no, hey, Pastor Zach didn't call me this week, so I guess I can fall into this sin, right? My brother's not checking on me. My, parole, my Christian parole officer isn't checking how I'm doing, so now I have excuses to fall into sin. No, Joseph, as a young man, he knew right away to run. To run for his life. And family, this is how we need to deal with sin. Is run for our life. Someone starts gossiping, starts talking garbage. Run for your life. Slam the door. What got into them? Right? I don't know. Adultery, sin, fornication, pornography. Run for your life. Grab the computer. Throw it out the window. Hopefully it's your computer, not your parents. But throw it out the window. 
Flee from sin. Joseph, he doesn't sit there and say, okay, let's talk this through. This, how are you feeling? What's going on? Why are you doing this? No, Joseph runs for his life. And it tells us that at a certain time, right, that it happened about this time. Joseph, he wasn't being super wise, being here alone in the house. But the language is showing us that Potiphar's wife had planned out this day. That she sent away all the other workers. We don't know if she's like hiding behind the curtains. We don't know if she's hanging from the roof. And the moment that Joseph come in, she jumped on him. But she had planned this out. She had planned this out hoping that she would get him to lay with her. And this is really the day and age we live in. That there are both men and women hunting to get people to sleep with them. Another head on their wall, right? And the moment you give in to it, the moment you think it's love, the moment you send them the picture, they disappear. And you're just another head mounted on their wall. Family, let's stay pure. Let's stay clean. The internet, some people think the internet's like a fake world. It's a fake reality. No, family, this is real life. Sin on the internet is still sin in our spirit. It's the same thing. Just because our eyes are closed doesn't mean that it happened. My kids, they're funny. When little, when little kids are funny, it's funny, right? Luke, when he wants to be defiant, he'll just like sort of close his eyes and like stare at you like, I don't see you. You're not here right now, right? And sometimes we think that. As long as I'm doing this sin online, as long as I'm cussing out this person online, it's okay. It's not, real, it's not the real world. But it affects our spirit. It affects our spirit. It affects our soul. It affects our relationship with Jesus Christ. It affects the body of Christ. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, right, it's so important to have verse 12. It tells us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Again, family, is God's word utter truth? Is God's word complete truth or do we pick it truth when it's on our side? Because if God's truth is legit and real, then guess what? Every time we sin, whose fault is it? Is mine. I can't blame it on anyone else because God's word legitimately says no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So often we think, man, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. No one else has dealt with this. This temptation's crazy, guys. You don't know what it's like, but I know how it is. And if you were me, you would have fallen into it too. God's word says, no, I'm not that special. All of you, you struggle with the same things I do. I struggle with the same things you do. So that's why we need to continue to put it out in the light. The enemy, again, he loves to bully us. He loves to say, hey, you are the only one that struggles with this. That's a lie. Bring it out into the light. Pray with someone. Again, ladies with ladies, men with men. Pick someone who is a godly person that you want to be like when you grow up. Don't pick the person that struggles with gossip. Don't pray with that person, right? Don't share with them how you're struggling. But we need to turn to one another and say, hey, I'm struggling with these things. This is just wickedness. This is my fault. Lord, will you help me? Next, it tells us God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. I just couldn't help it. I couldn't fight it. I was too tired and I just, I couldn't do it. No. 
God's word tells us that God himself will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, right? Through God, through the spirit, through his word, we need to turn to him and run. We can be reminded of Job. Every time Satan wants to mess with Job, who did he have to come to first? He had to come to God. Hey, God, I, I want to do, do this to this guy. And God said, eh, you could do this much. Okay, God, but if I do this, then he'll totally curse you. Eh, you could do this much. He had to ask for permission every single time. And the Lord was allowing Job to be a beacon of light and of holiness in a sinful world. Finally, but with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or be able to endure it. That every time we're faced with temptation, God gives us a way out. Every single time. There's that voice in our head. There's that phone call or that text that comes in in the middle of it. There's that scary noise that comes out and you're like, what was that? That's the Lord saying, stop this. Don't do this. Think of your family. Think of the church. Think of your reputation. Think of my reputation. Please don't do this. That's what God's word tells us. You can write down 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. You can think of 2222, right? 2 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, verse 22. It tells us, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Again, that word flee there is to run for your life. We think when someone runs away that they're a coward, right? But so often that's one of the wisest things you could do. Some of the highest forms of bravery that you can ever do. And we always like to pick and choose, right? Oh, you're a wuss, you ran away. Yeah, when you're there with a grizzly bear, what would you do, right? When you're there with the great white shark, what do you do, right? Like the movies, you punch it in the nose and hope it goes away. No, you swim, you, you hop on shore faster than you ever thought you could. You run for your life. So now when we think of sin, it just depends on how we see sin, how we view sin. If we really think that my life is hanging in the balance, my family's life is hanging in the balance here, then you'll flee from it. You'll run from it. But if you think it's a game, if you think it's cute, if you think it's not that bad, then you're going to play with that grizzly bear. You're going to play with that great white shark, and you're going to get beaten up and bruised. Right? It tells us flee, run away from youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, we start in verse 8. It tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Again, family, we have to be aware. We have to be sober. We can't allow our eyes to get hazy. We can't allow our minds to get messed up. We can't allow things to cloud our judgment. And that's all dependent on what you're feeding on. What are you feeding on that's going to cloud your judgment or that's going to make you sharper than ever? Last night, I don't know why I did it, but at like 1230, I had two slices of pizza and a soda, right? That was not wise. 
That was not wise to eat at that time, even though I was studying. I was like, Lord, you'll bless this, right? No, it was a bad, I'll sin. He had given me a way out to put it back in the fridge. But what are we eating on? What are we feeding on? Because that's either going to throw us off. We're going to feel weird. We're not going to feel right. But if we're feeding on the word of God, you're going to be sharp. You're going to be ready for the fight. You're going to be ready for the battle. In fact, God, through his word, is probably going to give you some verses and some scripture to fight back at the enemy. We only have one, right? One, two offensive weapons in this battle. We have prayer and the word of God. And so many believers are leaving their weapons at home. They know nothing about the weapon. And they think that they're going to survive the onslaught of Satan who has taken care of David, who has taken care of Samson, who has taken care of many, many mighty men and women. And we think we're going to get by with no weapon, right? We need to be ready, family. We need to be sharp. We need to be sober, vigilant, ready because Satan's walking around. I don't know about you, but in this season, I have been much more vigilant, much more ready. What is going on in the car, right? Are there people walking down the road out of nowhere, right? What's going to go on here? What's going to go down here? Satan's ready, guys. He's looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Be on alert. Resist him, stay steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings, right? Second time we see this, the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You are not the only one. The temptations, the trials we go through, we're not the only ones. There are people all over the world dealing with the same sins, with the same trials, with the same tribulations. And we're blessed. It was in our body, there's people that are going through much, much worse than we are. We need to pray for them. And we need to say, hey, if they can do it, we can do it, right? If Lisandra, if Jessica, if Joy Flores can come to church the day before surgery, Lord, I could come to church even though my stomach hurts. I can do it, God. If they can do it, I can do it, right? If the men and women in your word could do it, Lord, I can do it too. We go back to Genesis chapter 39. Finally, on this topic of sin, we have to make the decision ahead of time. We have to make the plan and the purpose ahead of time. I don't know if they still do it in schools, but when I was a kid, we would have fire drills, right? And we would have a plan. If things get bad, if things get hot, you get in a line, you touch the doorknob, then you go down this certain way. We didn't really care about it, but we had a plan. We were prepared. So ahead of time, we need to decide with sin, with temptation, what are we going to do? Am I okay with gossip? Am I okay with pornography? Am I okay with sex outside of marriage? Am I okay with dirty images on my phone or on my computer? Am I okay with being with someone in the opposite sex, alone in a car or alone at their house? Am I okay with these things? We need to ask ourselves, not at the moment when sin enters the room, but way ahead of time. Again, like Daniel, that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. We got to be there, family. We got to be saying, Lord, I don't want to mess with that. I don't want that to mess with my families. We got to think of these things ahead of time. My kids are six, three, and one. I'm thinking, Lord, when do you want me to have those conversations with them? Lord, when do they actually need a phone? Lord, when do they actually need social media? Do they even need social media, right? To ask ourselves these parents, are you asking yourself this? Are you praying, Lord, what's the cost? For them to be cool and slick in school, but they've been shown pornography, they've been shown sex, they've been shown violence that I haven't even seen yet? Are you saying, hey, it's okay if they're not cool? I'm not that cool as a parent, so it's okay if they're not cool. 
I'd rather them be holy and pure with the Lord more than that. We continue chapter 39, verse 16. It tells us, so she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these saying, he doesn't even mention his name. The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. And so it happened as I lifted my voice and I cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Verse 20. Then Joseph's master took him and he put him in the prison a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. If you remember Potiphar's job, right? What was his job? He was the chief executioner in all of Egypt. And we just read what Judah wanted to do to his daughter-in-law when she was caught in adultery. He wanted to burn her at the stake, three months pregnant. So what would you do if your job all day was chopping off heads and you hear of a guy tried to sleep with your wife? You wouldn't even think. You wouldn't even hesitate. So what this is revealing to us is that Potiphar probably knew the character of his wife and Potiphar probably knew the character of Joseph. Because there's no reason for him, for him to keep Joseph alive, much less put him in the prison area where the king's prisoners were confined. Again, Joseph's character was at such a place that even when he had no alibi, even when he had no one to fight for his side, the enemy was able to look at him and say, I can't throw the book at him. I can't give him the absolute worst of the worst. And then it tells us what he was put in prison but the Lord was with Joseph, shows him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, family, how would you be reacting? I probably wouldn't be doing very well. Lord, you gave me these dreams. I guess I was an idiot telling my brothers that they were going to bow down to me. But God, are these dreams even real? Are these things still going to happen? They beat me up. They sold me. Now I thought things were good. I was having a good life. I was being a good servant. And now I'm in prison for doing the right thing, for running away from sin. And now, Lord, I'm in prison. Lord, I'm done with this. I'm done with you. There's no one around here that loves you or serves you. There's no youth group. There's no young adults. Lord, I'm done with this. But Joseph stays righteous with the Lord. He stays pure before the Lord. Verse 22 and 23, And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hands all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. Right? Can you imagine a prison today doing something like this? Verse 23, The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Hey, family, let's turn to Psalm chapter 1. And family, Psalm 1 is a great reminder to us. Joseph, Daniel, these men are great reminders to us to stay pure and holy and faithful to God no matter what is happening. When do you want people to stay faithful to you? When do you want people to stay trustworthy to you? Only when you're doing good or all the time? Even on your worst days. And in Psalm chapter 1, we'll read the whole psalm. It tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So again, family, who are you standing with? Who are you sitting with? Who are you walking with? Is it the Lord's people or is it the ungodly? Is it the sinners? Is it the scornful? Where is your delight in? Is it in the law of God or is it in this world and the things of this world? So again, family, may we be like Joseph and not like Judah. May we not be running towards sin. May we be fleeing from it and running from it no matter the cost. 